Chapter Twenty One, Part One of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Twenty One. Camden, South Carolina, May two, eighteen sixty-five to August two, eighteen sixty-five. Part One. Camden, South Carolina, May two, eighteen sixty-five. Since we left Chester, nothing but solitude nothing but tall blackened chimneys to show that any man has ever trod this road before this is sherman's track it is hard not to curse him i wept incessantly at first the roses of the gardens are already hiding the ruins my husband said nature is a wonderful renovator he tried to say something else and then i shut my eyes and made a vow that if we were a crushed people crushed by weight i would never be a whimpering pining slave we heard loud explosions of gunpowder in the direction of Camden. Destroyers were at it there. Met William Walker, whom Mr. Preston left in charge of a carload of his valuables. General Preston was hardly out of sight before poor, helpless William had to stand by and see the car plundered. "'My dear missus, they have cleaned me out, nothing left,' moaned William the Faithful. "'We have nine armed couriers with us. Can they protect us?' bade adieu to the staff at Chester. No general ever had so remarkable a staff, so accomplished, so agreeable, so well-bred, and, I must say, so handsome, and can add, so brave and efficient. May 4th. Home again at Bloomsbury. From Chester to Winsboro we did not see one living thing, man, woman, or animal, except poor William trudging home after his sad disaster. The blooming of the gardens had a funereal effect. Nature is so luxuriant here, she soon covers the ravages of savages. No frost has occurred since the 7th of March, which accounts for the wonderful advance in vegetation. This seems providential to these starving people. In this climate, so much that is edible can be grown in two months. At Winsboro we stayed at Mr. Robertson's. There we left the wagon train. Only Mr. Brisbane, one of the general's couriers, came with us on escort duty. The Robertsons were very kind and hospitable, brimful of Yankee anecdotes. To my amazement, the young people of Winsboro had a May Day celebration amid the smoking ruins. Irrepressible is youth. The fidelity of the Negroes is the principal topic. There seems to be not a single case of a Negro who betrayed his master, and yet they showed a natural and exultant joy at being free. After we left Winsboro, Negroes were seen in the fields plowing and hoeing corn, just as in antebellum times. The fields in that respect looked quite cheerful. We did not pass in the line of Sherman's savages, and so saw some houses standing. Mary Kirkland has had experience with the Yankees. She has been pronounced the most beautiful woman on this side of the Atlantic, and has been spoiled accordingly in all society. When the Yankees came, Monroe, their Negro manservant, told her to stand up and hold two of her children in her arms, with the other two pressed as close against her knees as they could get. Mammy Selina and Lizzie then stood grimly on each side of their young missus and her children. For four mortal hours the soldiers surged through the rooms of the house. Sometimes Mary and her children were roughly jostled against the wall, but Mammy and Lizzie were staunch supporters. The Yankee soldiers taunted the Negro women for their foolishness in standing by their cruel slave-owners, and taunted Mary with being glad of the protection of her poor, ill-used slaves. 
Monroe, meanwhile, had one leg bandaged and pretended to be lame, so that he might not be enlisted as a soldier, and kept making pathetic appeals to Mary. "'Don't answer them back, Miss Mary,' said he. "'Let them say what they want to. Don't answer them back. Don't give them any chance to say you are impudent to them.' One man said to her, "'Why do you shrink from us and avoid us so? We did not come here to fight for Negroes. We hate them.' At Port Royal I saw a beautiful white woman driving in a wagon with a coal-black negro man. If she had been anything to me, I would have shot her through the heart. "'Oh, oh,' said Lizzie, "'that's the way you talk in here. I'll remember that when you begin outside to beg me to run away with you.' Finally poor Aunt Betsy, Mary's mother, fainted from pure fright and exhaustion. Mary put down her baby and sprang to her mother, who was lying limp in a chair, and fiercely called out, "'Leave this room, you wretches! Do you mean to kill my mother? She is ill. I must put her to bed.' Without a word they all slunk out ashamed. "'If I had only tried that hours ago,' she now said. Outside they remarked that she was an insolent rebel hussy who thinks herself too good to speak to a soldier of the United States. And one of them said, "'Let us go in and break her mouth.' But the better ones held the more outrageous back. Monroe slipped in again and said, "'Missy, for God's sake, when they come in, be sociable with them. They will kill you. Then let me die.' The negro soldiers were far worse than the white ones. Mrs. Bartow drove with me to Mulberry. On one side of the house we found every window had been broken, every bell torn down, every piece of furniture destroyed, and every door smashed in. But the other side was intact. Maria Whitaker and her mother, who had been left in charge, explained this odd state of things. The Yankees were busy as beavers, working like regular carpenters, destroying everything, when their general came in and stopped them. He told them it was a sin to destroy a fine old house like that, whose owner was over ninety years old. He would not have had it done for the world. It was wanton mischief. He explained to Maria that soldiers at such times were excited, wild, and unruly. They carried off sacks full of our books, since, unfortunately, they found a pile of empty sacks in the garret. Our books, our letters, our papers were afterwards strewn along the Charleston Road. Somebody found things of ours as far away as Vance's Ferry. This was Potter's Raid. Footnote. The reference appears to be to General Edward E. Potter, a native of New York City who died in 1889. General Potter entered the Federal Service early in the war. He recruited a regiment of North Carolina troops and engaged in operations in North and South Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. End footnote. Sherman took only our horses. Potter's raid came after Johnston's surrender and ruined us finally, burning our mills and gins and a hundred bales of cotton. Indeed, nothing is left to us now but the bare land and the debts contracted for the support of hundreds of Negroes during the war. J. H. Boykin was at home at the time to look after his own interests, and he, with John Desaussure, has saved the cotton on their estates, with the mules and farming utensils, and plenty of cotton as capital to begin on again. The Negroes would be a good riddance. A hired man would be a good deal cheaper than a man whose father and mother, wife and twelve children, have to be fed, clothed, housed, and nursed, their taxes paid, and their doctor's bills, all for his half-done, slovenly, lazy work. For years we have thought Negroes a nuisance that did not pay. They pretend exuberant loyalty to us now. Only one man of Mr. Chestnut's left the plantation with the Yankees. When the Yankees found the western troops were not at Camden, but down below Swift Creek, 
Like sensible folk, they came up the other way. And while we waited at Chester for marching orders, we were quickly ruined after the surrender. With our cotton saved, and cotton at a dollar a pound, we might be in comparatively easy circumstances. But now it is the devil to pay, and no pitch hot. Well, all this was to be. Goddard Bailey, editor, whose prejudices are all against us, described the raids to me in this wise. They were regularly organized. First came squads who demanded arms and whiskey. Then came the rascals who hunted for silver, ransacked the ladies' wardrobes, and scared women and children into fits, at least those who could be scared. Some of these women could not be scared. Then came some smiling, suave, well-dressed officers who regretted it all so much. Outside the gate, officers, men, and bummers divided even, share and share alike, the piles of plunder. When we crossed the river coming home, the ferryman at Chestnut's Ferry asked for his fee. Among us all we could not muster the small silver coin he demanded. There was poverty for you. Nor did a stiver appear among us until Molly was hauled home from Columbia, where she was waging war with Sheriff Dent's family. As soon as her foot touched her native heath, she sent to hunt up the cattle. Many of our cows were found in the swamp. Like Marion's men, they had escaped the enemy. Molly sells butter for us now on shares. Old Cuffy, head gardener at Mulberry, and Yella Abram, his assistant, have gone on in the even tenor of their way. Men may come and men may go, but they dig on forever. And they say they mean to, as long as old Master is alive. We have green peas, asparagus, lettuce, spinach, new potatoes, and strawberries in abundance, enough for ourselves, and plenty to give away to refugees. It is early in May, and yet two months since frost. Surely the wind was tempered to the shorn lamb in our case. Johnny went over to see Hampton. His cavalry are ordered to reassemble on the 20th, a little farce to let themselves down easily. They know it is all over. Johnny, smiling serenely, said, the thing is up and forever. Goddard Bailey has presence of mind. Anne Sab left a gold card case, which was a terrible oversight, among the cards on the drawing-room table. When the Yankee raiders saw it, their eyes glistened. Goddard whispered to her, Let them have that gilt thing, and slip away and hide the silver. No, shouted a Yank. You don't fool me that way. Here's your old brass thing. Don't you stir. Fork over that silver and so they deposited the gold card-case in Goddard's hands, and stole plated spoons and forks, which had been left out because they were plated. Mrs. Beach says two officers slept at her house. Each had a pillowcase crammed with silver and jewelry. Spoils of war, they called it. Floride Canty heard an old negro say to his master, "'When you all had the power, you was good to me, and I'll protect you now. No niggers nor Yankees shall touch you.' If you want anything, call for Sambo. I mean, call for Mr. Samuel. That my name now. May 10th. A letter from a Pharisee who thanks the Lord she is not as other women are. She need not pray, as the Scotch parson did, for a good conceit of herself. She writes, I feel that I will not be ruined. Come what may, God will provide for me. But her husband had strengthened the Lord's hands, and, for the glory of God, doubtless, invested some thousands of dollars in New York, where Confederate moth did not corrupt, nor Yankee bummers break through and steal. She went on to tell us, I have had the good things of this world, and I have enjoyed them in their season, but I only held them as steward for God, 
My bread has been cast upon the waters and will return to me. E. M. Boykin said today, We had a right to strike for our independence, and we did strike a bitter blow. They must be proud to have overcome such a foe. I dare look any man in the face. There is no humiliation in our position after such a struggle as we made for freedom from the Yankees. He is sanguine. His main idea is joy that he has no Negroes to support, and need hire only those he really wants. Stephen Elliott told us that Sherman said to Joe Johnston, Look out for yourself. This agreement only binds the military, not the civil authorities. Is our destruction to begin anew? For a few weeks we have had peace. Sally Reynolds told a short story of a Negro pet of Mrs. Kershaw's. The little Negro clung to Mrs. Kershaw and begged her to save him. The Negro mother, stronger than Mrs. Kershaw, tore him away from her. Mrs. Kershaw wept bitterly. Sally said she saw the mother chasing the child before her as she ran after the Yankees, whipping him at every step. The child yelled like mad, a small rebel blackamoor. May 16th. We are scattered and stunned, the remnant of heart left alive within us filled with brotherly hate. We sit and wait until the drunken tailor who rules the United States of America issues a proclamation and defines our anomalous position. Such a hue and cry, but whose fault? Everybody is blamed by somebody else. The dead heroes left stiff and stark on the battlefield escape, blame every man who stayed at home and did not fight. I will not stop to hear excuses. There is not one word against those who stood out until the bitter end and stacked muskets at Appomattox. May 18th. A feeling of sadness hovers over me now, day and night, which no words of mine can express. There is a chance for plenty of character study in this Mulberry house, if one only had the heart for it. Colonel Chestnut, now ninety-three, blind and deaf, is apparently as strong as ever, and certainly as resolute of will. Partly patriarch, partly grand seigneur, this old man is of a species that we shall see no more, the last of a race of lordly planters who ruled this southern world, but now a splendid wreck. His manners are unequaled still but underneath this smooth exterior lies the grip of a tyrant whose will has never been crossed. I will not attempt what Lord Byron says he could not do, but must quote again. Everybody knows a gentleman when he sees him. I have never met a man who could describe one. We have had three very distinct specimens of the genus in this house, three generations of gentlemen, each utterly different from the other, father, son, and grandson. African Scipio walks at Colonel Chestnut's side. He is six feet two, a black Hercules, and as gentle as a dove in all his dealings with the blind old master, who boldly strides forward, striking with his stick, to feel where he is going. The Yankees left Scipio unmolested. He told them he was absolutely essential to his old master, and they said, If you want to stay so bad, he must have been good to you always. Sip says he was silent for it made them mad if you praised your master. Sometimes this old man will stop himself, just as he is going off in a fury, because they try to prevent his attempting some feat impossible in his condition of lost faculties. He will ask gently, I hope that I never say or do anything unseemly. Sometimes I think I am subject to mental aberrations. At every footfall he calls out, Who goes there? If a lady's name is given, he uncovers and stands, with his hat off, until she passes. 
He still has the old-world art of bowing low and gracefully. Colonel Chestnut came of a race that would brook no interference with their own sweet will by man, woman, or devil. But then such manners has he, they would clear any man's character, if he needed it. Mrs. Chestnut, his wife, used to tell us that when she met him at Princeton in the nineties of the eighteenth century, they called him the Young Prince. He and Mr. John Taylor, of Columbia, were the first up-country youths whose parents were wealthy enough to send them off to college. Footnote. John Taylor was graduated from Princeton in 1790 and became a planter in South Carolina. He served in Congress from 1806 to 1810, and in the latter year was chosen to fill a vacancy in the United States Senate, caused by the resignation of Thomas Sumter. In 1826 he was chosen governor of South Carolina. He died in 1832. End footnote. When a college was established in South Carolina, Colonel John Chestnut, the father of the aforesaid young prince, was on the first board of trustees. Indeed, I may say that, since the revolution of 1776, there has been no convocation of the notables of South Carolina, in times of peace and prosperity, or of war and adversity, in which a representative man of this family has not appeared. The estate has been kept together until now. Mrs. Chestnut said she drove down from Philadelphia on her bridal trip in a chariot and four, a cream-colored chariot with outriders. They have a saying here, on account of the large families with which people are usually blessed, and the subdivision of property consequent upon that fact, besides the tendency of one generation to make and to save, and the next to idle and to squander, that there are rarely more than three generations between shirt-sleeves and shirt-sleeves. But these chestnuts have secured four, from the John Chestnut who was driven out from his father's farm in Virginia by the French and Indians, when that father had been killed at Fort Duquesne, to the John Chestnut who saunters along here now, the very perfection of a lazy gentleman, who cares not to move unless it be for a fight, a dance, or a fox hunt. Footnote. Fort Duquesne stood at the junction of the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers. Captain Trent, acting for the Ohio Company, with some Virginia militiamen, began to build this fort in February 1754. On April 17th of the same year, 700 Canadians and French forced him to abandon the work. The French then completed the fortress and named it Fort Duquesne. The unfortunate expedition of General Braddock in the summer of 1755 was an attempt to retake the fort, Braddock's defeat occurring eight miles east of it. In 1758, General Forbes marched westward from Philadelphia and secured possession of the place, after the French, alarmed at his approach, had burned it. Forbes gave it the name of Pittsburgh. End footnote. The first comer of that name to this state was a lad when he arrived after leaving his land in Virginia, and being without fortune otherwise, he went into Joseph Kershaw's grocery shop as a clerk, and the Kershaws, I think, so remember that fact that they have it on their coat of arms. Our Johnny, as he was driving me down to Mulberry yesterday, declared himself delighted with the fact that the present Joseph Kershaw had so distinguished himself in our war that they might let the shop of a hundred years ago rest for a while. "'Upon my soul,' cried the cool captain, "'I have a desire to go in there and look at the Kershaw tombstones.' I am sure they have put it on their marble tablets that we had an ancestor one day, a hundred years ago, who was a clerk in their shop. This clerk became a captain in the Revolution. In the second generation, the shop had so far sunk that the John Chestnut of that day refused to let his daughter marry a handsome, dissipated Kershaw, 
and she, a spoiled beauty, who could not endure to obey orders when they were disagreeable to her, went up to her room and therein remained, never once coming out of it for forty years. Her father let her have her own way in that. He provided servants to wait upon her, and every conceivable luxury that she desired, but neither party would give in. I am, too, thankful that I am an old woman, forty-two my last birthday. There is so little life left in me now to be embittered by this agony. Nonsense! I am a pauper, says my husband, and I am as smiling and as comfortable as ever you saw me. When you have to give up your horses, how then? End of chapter 21, part 1